Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This is Addison Peacock, and you're listening to The Wicked Library. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation in them are under your control. Hello and welcome to Season 11, Episode 1107 of The Wicked Library. I'm your host and temporary librarian, Jessica McAvoy. I'm best known for my voice work on the No Sleep podcast, but if you've hung around long enough, you've likely heard me haunting several other horror audio dramas as well, including, of course, The Wicked Library. Now... Horror and science fiction have gone hand-in-hand since Mary Shelley introduced us to Dr. Frankenstein and his monster. The common interpretation of the novel is seen as an admonishment against science reaching too far, acting outside of what is natural. Personally, I felt more significance in the story as a reminder that science must be responsible for its own creations, rather than a rebuke against the advancement of knowledge altogether. In today's episode, Wicked Library alum author Samantha Mayotte presents us with a tale that explores just that. But before we get into their story, I'd like to take a moment to thank the listeners who support the show on Patreon. Without them, this show wouldn't be possible, and they allow us to make sure that everyone who contributes to the show is fairly compensated for their labors. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary. For as little as $3 a month, you can help make the show you love possible and get fun rewards. A lot of hard work and money goes into making the Wicked Library, and they really do rely on this support to help pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. In addition to knowing that you're part of making the show possible, You also get rewards like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, access to bonus stories, and at higher levels of support, even more. You can support us at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary. Anyway, what was I saying? Oh, yes. Monsters and science gone wrong. Or right, depending on who you ask. In today's story, we meet a woman whose obsession with becoming in her mind, a perfect creature, something decidedly unnatural, I'm sure Shelley would agree, leads her to an organization on the cutting edge of science. Addison Peacock reads this story for us, written by Samantha Mayotte, 
with a custom score by Nico Vitesse of We Talk of Dreams. More information can be found on all of today's contributors on the Wicked Library website. And now, without further ado, let's find out exactly what goes into Making the Marrow. Making the Marrow by Samantha Mayotte Water crashed against the rocks, pushing my legs violently into the stone. Absently, I kicked my ankles, making a small splash of my own, eyes closed against the sunlight. It was the first perfect summer day, and Cassandra and I had ducked out of work to go to the beach. I could hear her now, calling for me expressing her frustration to the other friends she'd invited. She wasn't wrong, either. I almost always disappeared from a group to get lost in my own head while sunning on a rock, my deep red hair splayed out like a Disney princess and desperately trying to tan. I'd been sunning on rocks since childhood, and yet my skin had built up no more resistance to the harsh rays as they'd had when I was a newborn. My apartment was never without aloe vera gel to cool the inevitable sunburn. With a sigh, I turned my head and opened my eyes in the direction of Cassandra's voice. In a minute, I'd sit up and call back to her that I was on my way. The breeze had grown colder, and the sun was getting lower in the sky. I eased myself back into the water with a hint of guilt. I'd promised Cassandra I wouldn't do the mermaid thing all day, yet I was swimming back to shore from my favorite rock to do just that. I kicked my legs, wishing that just once, even in my most realistic dreams, I could know how it felt to have a tail fin instead of two short, pale legs. When I was younger, I used to stare at my legs until my eyes crossed and they became one, but when I moved or blinked, the illusion shattered, and I was stuck with my own two human legs. Once I did this and became inconsolable when my legs split apart again, nearly getting CPS called on my poor parents, so intense and horrifying were my screams of anguish. They used to joke that if I spent much more time underwater, they were afraid I was going to turn into a fish like in the incredible Mr. Limpet. By the time I was ten, I could easily hold my breath over a minute, and keep my eyes open, even in the murkiest waters or most chlorinated pools. I loved the cool water on my skin and the smell of salt in my hair and in the breeze. I spent hours watching The Little Mermaid, thinking I must have been a long-lost descendant of Ariel. My hair was the same color, and I longed for something new and different, a world I could never have, as much as she craved to know about life on land. Some people grew up wanting to be actors or stand-up comedians 
or vampires, as the ancient meme goes. It just happened that I'd grown up wanting to be a mermaid. Or a siren, or a marrow, any underwater fish-human hybrid of myth. I wanted to know what life was like under the sea. I'd taken classes on diving and studied marine biology in school, in hopes I might find evidence of their existence. I hadn't yet, but there were definitely things going on below the surface I couldn't explain. No one else seemed to be able to either. Of course, my notes on that had gotten me canned from my last assistant position, and I was currently working with Cassandra at some hippie clothing store at the local mall. I finished my mug of lukewarm tea and blinked a few times, stretching my limbs. While I was only working part-time, I'd given much of my free time to researching breakthroughs in medical science that might get me closer to my unlikely and yet so sought-after aspiration. I'd found a few studies regarding artificial gills, and while it seemed unlikely, according to much of the science, humans simply needed more oxygen than they'd be able to get from water since we're warm-blooded, unlike fish. It looked like there were some studies that theorized that someday it might be possible. I still wasn't sure what I would do with this research, even if I could prove a person could theoretically become a mer-person or a marrow, siren, myriad, or similar creature, besides see myself laughed out of every grant proposal I'm able to set up. Beyond getting me to the state of being I'd wanted, if someone were able to go deeper underwater, withstand the cold and the pressure... Think of all the discoveries we could make. All the good we could do for the ecosystems and the new organisms we could discover. Things untainted and unruined by human hands. Well, I'd have to first prove it was a viable idea. And I couldn't do that without more info. I clicked the first link on the Google page, knowing there was likely no factual information past page 10. I'd passed page 10 about an hour ago. In that moment, equal parts hopeful and hopeless, I found the Genetic Mythos Organization's website. The background was a gaudy blue, and the text against it was near invisible. My eyes focused on a heading about a quarter of the way down the page. In a different font and color, white instead of seafoam green, the text read, What if you could have genetic perfection? Genetic perfection? By whose definition? Alone in my small apartment, wrapped in a fuzzy bathrobe with my hair still damp from the shower, I wondered if there was some possibility. Wondered if I could prove Cassandra wrong for teasing me. My heart quickened as I thought of being able to rub my victory in the face of my teenage bullies who tortured me with horrible nicknames and once a dead fish in my locker. Listening to the hum of the large fish tank in my living room, I kicked my leg up, balancing it on the desk, and opened my settings, desperately trying to make the text a little more readable. Ten minutes later, my eyes were strained again, and I was no closer to unearthing the text. The idea struck me just as I was getting ready to give up. Opening a notepad document, I copied and pasted the whole of the website's text into it, Shocked I hadn't thought of doing it earlier. My feeling of foolishness was short-lived when I found the text to be mostly gibberish. 
Not even that lorem ipsum bullshit that's on test sites and blog skin previews, but pure keyboard smash, kid pretending to be computer hacker gibberish. There was nothing of value in the hard-to-read text. Well, almost nothing. Underneath the white words asking me about genetic perfection, there was a phone number. It must have been the same color as the background. It wasn't an 800 number, and it wasn't an area code I recognized. With my luck, it was sure to be some scam or virus that keylogged my phone and stole my credit card and banking information. To be as safe as possible, I searched the number in Google, hoping someone would have flagged it as a scam. One of the few results confirmed it was an automated line for those seeking further information on the Genetic Mythos organization. I grabbed a pen and scribbled the number down, making a note to call in the morning. It was nearly midnight, far too late to call now when there was almost no chance of getting to a real person. Nothing aggravated me more than going through an automated system only to wait on hold for even longer for another automated system to pick up and tell me the place was closed. Half the time they didn't even give the real office hours. I let out a breath, trying to stave off my frustration. I'd had a long day, between work and my fruitless research, and the last ten minutes was the only part that almost made up for it. That and the fuzzy robe against my skin. Soft fabrics were what I would miss most if I was ever able to live underwater. An alarm tinkled on my phone, alerting me that it was time to get to bed. Ten minutes later, I crawled under the covers, reaching for the lamp and turning it off. I had an afternoon shift the following day, which would leave me plenty of time to enjoy a leisurely morning and give a call to the Genetic Mythos Organization. I woke up to my boss calling me into work because she was alone in the store. Just my luck, I'd forgotten to grab my notepad before leaving, so even though I had plenty of downtime to sneak off while it was slow, I'd left myself high and dry, unable to do anything but wait and let my anxiety grow. I drove home with a lump in my throat and my stomach churning, determined to dial the strange number on the gibberish website telling myself I would hang up and get a new phone at the first sign of anything strange. I was taking purposeful, deep breaths as I walked into my apartment, kicking the door closed and feeding my fish. I hadn't eaten anything all day, and had barely had anything to drink. Half of me screamed for food, but the other half determined I'd just get sick. I hadn't even thought about heading to the beach to savor the last few rays of sunshine. This phone number was ruining my life, and it hadn't even been a full 24 hours. Pulling out my phone, I settled in my cheap, rickety office chair. Reaching for the notepad, I pulled it toward me and started pushing numbers in my phone, ignoring the fact there were too many for any conventional number, either domestic or international. My heart sank, and I stopped dialing. This number caused me so much grief and it wasn't even a real fucking phone number. Rage washed over me, and my arm moved back as though I were about to throw my phone. At the last moment, I dropped my hand back into my lap. Not only would I break my fish tank, murdering my little darlings, it wouldn't get me anywhere. I stared at the black box of my phone's inactive screen in my shaking hand. If it wasn't real, it wouldn't dial 
or it would give me some kind of message telling me the call couldn't be completed. I'd already decided it might have been a scam and what I would do with my phone. By giving up before I'd started, all I knew was I would never end up being the beautiful sea creature I'd always dreamed of being, denying myself, just like everyone else had. I unlocked my phone and finished punching in the last six digits. For too many heartbeats, the only sound was the rushing of my own blood in my ears. Then, the call connected, and my eyes burned with tears I couldn't explain as I waited for a robot to tell me I'd been had. A robotic voice did pick up, but not to tell me I was a sucker. Instead, without preamble, it began giving me information on the genetic mythos organization. I barely had time to grab my pen and scribble down an address before it unceremoniously hung up on me without an option to repeat it. The message was oddly cryptic and almost a little too personal, like it knew me, mentioning the obsession with the water, the need for something more, even mentioning what I'd studied in college. I found myself letting out a nervous chuckle as I brought the phone away from my ear and set it down. I read over my own shaking handwriting, making sure I could read it. Deciding it was good enough, I stood up to leave. I shouldn't go so late. It was barely eight at night, but there was the potential for things to get very dangerous for me. A single person, not very strong, walking alone into a strange address I'd never heard of before. Still, though, if I didn't go, I may never have another chance. I didn't know if this was like catching lightning in a bottle, or whatever that saying is. Maybe I wouldn't have another chance. Maybe the phone call started some kind of timer. As improbable as it seemed, I'd waited too long to risk missing the opportunity. Goodbye, my babies, I said to my fish tank grabbing my keys and heading out the door. If I could have my own version of genetic perfection, there wasn't a whole lot I wouldn't do to get it. I knew what I might be getting myself into and what kind of wannabe Victor Frankensteins there were out there. Hell, I'd even entertained the idea of finding one of them to help me with my plight. I might end up a headline, or if I was lucky a Netflix limited series on people who were chopped up by a psycho faux scientist who took Mary Shelley and her science fiction way too seriously. I ignored images of being held against my will and cut open, turned into an unwilling science experiment and having my top half sewn to an octopus bottom, of having gills slashed into my neck and being thrown into salt water with ragged wounds and told I was a mermaid, that I should learn to act like one. Or... I was running away from my boring life as a mundane, average human to live the life I'd always wanted. To be able to swim and explore and research and study everything and anything under the sea. To sun myself on rocks and breathe underwater and watch the sunrise and set and the moon through the water as I lay my head down at night with the sand at the bottom of the sea as my pillow. Thinking about it caused the tension in my shoulders to ease. That sounded a hell of a lot better than doing what I did, 
applying for jobs in my field, sometimes getting interviews, but ultimately not getting anywhere because I was actually interested in saving the ecosystem and the ocean's creatures instead of simply finding new ways to destroy the environment and put those creatures in cages. These people, this genetic mythos organization, might know what they were doing. Maybe they left the message cryptic on purpose, so only people who really wanted it would find it. And holy hell had I wanted it. I'd have gone on a Wonka-esque candy spree if it meant getting myself a tail fin and a pair of gills or two. When I reached the building, it wasn't the run-down mad science lab I'd imagined. I let out a sigh of relief. At least if I were going to be attacked, it wasn't going to be in the parking lot. There was a spark of hope inside me, stronger and louder than any sign of danger. Maybe something was going my way. I felt one step closer to my dream, my goal, my aspirations, the one thing I was willing to risk everything for. I killed the engine, scanning the empty lot, gauging how far from the door I was and how quickly my legs might carry me to it. It wasn't fully dark yet. I was being paranoid. Slipping out of the car, I closed the door as quietly as I could and crept forward, forcing my shaky legs to carry me. For all the excitement I felt, there was an equal amount of fear. While it seemed unprecedented, I couldn't shake it either. I could only press onward, forcing one foot in front of the other in hopes that it was true and real and that these rubbery, frightened legs would soon be traded for a glorious, magnificent fin. My hand reached for the door. Sure, this was going to be the end. Wrapping my knuckles around the door, I pulled, expecting the resistance of a lock blocking my way. The door gave way. The inside smelled like salt water, and a mixed array of office cleaning supplies. There was an elegant, half-oval-shaped desk directly in front of me, and a woman with near-perfect symmetry glanced up at me from dazzling gray eyes. She gave me an apologetic smile, then tapped a button on a headset covering one ear. Her voice was like an angel's choir. I hardly minded waiting, half listening to the conversation just to hear her voice chime in my ears. I was almost sad when she uttered a formal goodbye, wishing the call could be drawn out so I might listen a little longer. When she finished her phone call and turned her attention to me, there wasn't a hint of annoyance or boredom like so many receptionists I'd interacted with. I stumbled through my explanation, finding the words hard to push out of my mouth, apologizing for showing up so late. It was simple in my mind, but I'd known the reaction my friends, people who cared about me, gave when I explained my desire to be something other, something better than my human self. It was almost worse to explain it to a stranger, half expecting the same or worse ridicule. Eventually, I finished, and the waiting began. With a chuckle and a knowing smile, she gathered some papers and handed them to me to fill out. 
Even the ink flowed better here than it did in my own apartment. The pens made of some heavenly device that wrote with liquid silk and never smudged. The form was rather self-explanatory. Name, age, gender, which blessedly gave more options than the standard male or female, and what my interest in the project was. I was as specific as I could be without making myself sound, as some people would say, absolutely bonkers. I looked up when I'd finished, but the woman was gone, leaving me with the chemical scent of an industrial office park. With a nervous look around, I settled in my seat to wait. I should have asked one of my friends to feed my fish, or told them where I was going. Something... Anything, really. Images of tusk and the human centipede forced their way into my mind, and I forced them out. I'd made my decision, and I was going to see it through, body horror and all, if necessary. The symmetrical woman, whose name is Natasha, showed again, tasteful heels clicking against the linoleum, and asked me to follow her. She was taking me up to meet the doctor. Nervously, I followed her down a few halls and into an elevator while she chattered about the doctor in question, who I learned was in charge of, to use her words, genetic progression. When we finally reached the room, it was all white, with pristine walls and a counter with jars and drawers of single-use medical equipment. In the center of the room was something that resembled the fish tank in my own living room. It didn't look like water inside. Red flags flashed in my head like Christmas lights, and I ignored every one of them. Feet frozen to the spot out of either determination or sheer unwillingness to admit I'd been had. The only other option was fear, and I wasn't letting that be an option. Natasha's melodic voice introduced me to the doctor, a balding man in an off-white button-up, simple blue tie haphazardly tied around his neck. He was stocky, but not overweight, and his eyes were friendly in his otherwise stern face as he gave me a half-hearted welcome to what he called the Marrow Project. I tried to smile, but like my legs, the rest of me felt frozen as warning signs of danger continued to go off like synapses firing in my brain. I had to know more about the Marrow Project and how I might factor into it. The way Dr. Radagast explained it to me, the tank in the room with us was, in its essence, a type of incubator. Instead of a human child growing inside, they were going to put a clump of my own cells inside my own modified cells. As it was explained to me, I would need to stay in the facility, which had regular hotel-style rooms, and the doctors would give me cells to attempt altering my own DNA. Then, along with the new clump of cells I would donate, I would be placed in my own, much larger incubator. The whole thing sounded a little like stem cell research on a much grander scale. Once they had one of me, they'd know it was possible to make more, hence the much smaller tank. If it turned out the Marrow Project was viable, both the new me and the new me, the one made in the tank and the original altered version, 
would work to assist the project for a certain length of time before being set free. He seemed purposefully vague on what assistance I would be providing, but I had a feeling it would be minimal, mostly donating cells and participating as a sort of control subject to discuss how the changes were affecting me and how I felt physically. Whether I would be doing any actual research, either in the water or otherwise, wasn't specified. It made sense, also, considering how he was talking about how long it would take to adjust to my new body. I stepped forward, looking at the tank next to Natasha and Dr. Radagast. There was something growing inside it. On first look, it looked like a regular human fetus. I wondered why it was removed from the mother, but then I noticed something different. Firstly, it was too large to be a regular fetus. Secondly, the legs were all wrong for a human. Let me clarify, this lack of legs growing was not an abnormality or physical deformation. The scientists were not growing a disabled human child. The legs were growing together. Instead of two little human legs, there was one multicolored miracle growing. The tears threatened to spill from my eyes almost immediately upon seeing it. This was nothing I'd seen before, but everything I'd ever wanted, everything I'd ever dreamed of. The creature in the cell was not a viable subject. While it might have looked fine on the outside, its vital signs were all wrong, even for something cold-blooded. Body temperature, heart rate, and oxygen levels were too low for it to survive outside the tank. And as it continued to grow, more problems had come up. Badly formed lungs, equally malformed gills. They'd been hoping they were wrong, that I would only be a follow-up test, but Dr. Radagast's team was running low on options. They kept the tank alive, however, in case they found a way to save the subject during their testing on me, or a way to terminate humanely. I ignored another red flag. Moments of my past flashed through my mind, at public pools, or on vacation on some sunny beach in a place where I could see the bottom of the sea from the shore, lying on a rock with my feet in the water, kicking them up together, wishing I had not legs, but the beautiful tail fin that was growing on the child in the tank. I felt the separateness of my legs and how often I wished I could sew the traitorous limbs together. I couldn't take my eyes off the tank, could barely hear the heavenly tones of Natasha's voice telling me she'd gone over my paperwork while the doctor and I were speaking, and it seemed I would be a perfect candidate. I already knew she was going to ask me again if this was truly what I wanted. Maybe hand me another form or twelve to sign away my bodily autonomy or keep the details of the Merrill Project under wraps. I knew the answer already. Yes. I'd signed my whole life away for this. Quitting my job at the clothing store was a glorious feeling after all the bullshit hours and calls on my off days to ask inane questions. The genetic mythos organization let me bring my fish, even helped me to transport their tank when I moved to the facility. My red hair was tied back to make it easier to move into the spacious mini-suite, 
though aside from the fish tank, the only thing I'd brought was my clothes, my laptop, my journal, and a few of my favorite mugs. I was told it wouldn't be long before I wouldn't need anything at all, that they would provide it as I was now considered an asset to them. My room was near the ocean. They'd set up here so near to the beachfront for a reason, so they could use actual ocean water to house the saltwater creatures they were creating. They would use the tanks to help us acclimate. That was one thing I still had to hand it to the geneticists about. They didn't experiment on animals. Everyone who'd walked into their projects had been like me, ready, willing, and eager to shed their humanity for something they felt was greater. The best part? I finally met others like me. Other people who'd spent their lives wanting to be satyrs, centaurs, disturbing spider people apparently from Japanese myth. And I even met a harpy. A real live bird woman flying around, squawking as if the world were ending. I stopped when I reached her habitat, hesitant before entering. From myth, I knew a harpy's temperament wasn't always the best. But when she met my eyes, they were kind. Though there was something else hidden there. Something I couldn't quite make out. I spoke to her for a time, wondering why she wouldn't answer any of my questions. She came a little closer, and I realized her mouth had been replaced by a beak, effectively cutting off her speech. Her squawking was meant to be the answer to my question. She came closer, and I read the emotion she'd been trying to hide from me. There was anger behind her eyes, and fear. Aside from the harpy, I sat down with a fawn and a snake woman who told me she was something called a lamia. I never looked up what it was, but she was beautiful. Black hair, dark skin, and when her torso became smooth snake scales, they ranged from deep gold to dark brown. She explained it was what she'd always wanted. To be quick as the wind, to not be confined to awkward slow movements that human legs allowed. When I left, I saw in the reflection as I turned away that her smile faltered, just for a second. I shoved red flags into my small closet every night, shutting them away and refusing to see them. I remained steady on my path, allowing the scientists to take small parts of me. Samples of skin, hair, blood, anything they needed, and to give me the injections. Eventually, I knew, I'd need to rest in one of the tanks they'd shown me. All the pain and discomfort from the grafts of skin and the steady stream of blood donations I was going through was simply a prelude to the actual experiment. An experiment that would finally make me perfect. I asked about the harpy, since I hadn't seen her since the day we'd sat together, hoping she'd been let go and I might take a walk outside to speak to her before going into the tank but I was informed there had never been a harpy in the program. I must have been mistaken. I'd seen her. I'd spoken to her. I'd watched her soar around the trees and oceans while I sat on rocks and fought myself to stay longer and longer in the cold water. She'd been the one to encourage me, to tell me to swim down until my lungs couldn't take it and the pressure in my head was too great. 
she'd pulled me out more than once. She was gone, and once again, the red flag shot up. By now, though, I was much too invested, much too dependent, too determined to be the me I'd always wanted to let it differ me. Instead, it joined the rest of the red flags in the back of my mind, hidden in plain sight beneath rose-tinted glasses. I remembered a conversation I'd had with the harpy, one-sided as they were. I told her nothing seemed to matter, not how far I could swim, or how good I was, or how well I'd managed to secure a job that kept me close to the ocean. I still wished for more. I wished for my eyes to be able to cut through the darkness so I could see the wonders created beneath. They say that space is less frightening than the ocean, and in so many ways that's true. And I wanted to see the ocean more than anything. Movies could tell me some things in my imagination, others, but soon, soon I'd be able to see it myself. I hoped as well that one day I might be joined by that other me, so we might experience them together. I wondered if the others ever saw their tank-grown counterparts. Would I be lonely as the world's only mermaid? Having no company except for the other creatures here at the Genetic Mythos Organization? Would I even have the company of others, or would I be too busy training myself how to remain calm underwater while breathing through gills? Would I no longer care for the company of others? I supposed I spent enough time alone as it was. At least I would be alone to explore in the place I'd always wanted to be. The truth was, I was a bit troubled. Aside from my own visits, the creatures created, the people who'd been experiments, always seemed to be alone. For whatever reason, there was only one, if any single creature. One centaur, one satyr, one fawn, one harpy, one lamia, soon, one mermaid. The strangest part was being allowed to see it. The secondary marrow, I mean. The one they thought would be, since they were working with samples so fresh. Every day I went to visit this little growing version of myself, its face a more perfect version of my own. One without the scar across my cheek I'd gotten in second grade when I'd hit a rock and flipped over my handlebars. It was without any of the small scars from fighting with my acne as a teenager, or the slight discoloration that refused to go away from the time I'd nearly gotten second-degree burns while lying on a rock where my parents couldn't find me. I wasn't sure if it could hear me. I'd never seen it. Them? Stir. Not really. Never seen them move, or open their eyes, or cry, or speak. I wondered why, but every time I asked, I was told it wasn't perfect yet, wasn't ready, like the place was baking souffles instead of manufacturing creatures, creatures with thoughts and feelings. Did the creatures have thoughts or feelings? It wasn't something I'd given a thought to. No one else had mentioned the tank version of themselves. I wondered why that was. Was it that it didn't matter since they were perfect? Was it that they didn't get the same amount of information I had? 
I wondered if I would forget about the time I spent with the little me when I was out of my own tank, when my experiment was completed. Finally, it was time for me to go into the tank. A few months, a year at the most, they said, and I would come out, genetically perfect and ready to live my life. They'd been able to accelerate the genetic growth for the Marrow Project. Dr. Radagast told me how lucky I was, that everyone else had waited nearly a year before they were ready to go into their own incubators. Before heading down the hall to my own tank room appointment, I walked into the room where the little me was being grown, and it was no longer little. It was my shape and size exactly. Or the top half was. The lower half was the me I'd always wished to be. I gazed upon it, speechless, awestruck by its perfection. I could only hope I would look like this when I came out of the tank. Gazing upon my tank green counterpart, I took them in, still unable to believe my genes helped create this miracle. With the perfect features and deep red hair and perfectly pale skin and iridescent scales in a perfect blue-green. A little bluer than teal, but somehow it was exactly the color I'd specified when telling Natasha what my ideal mermaid body would look like. And a little more. They'd had to make some adjustments from my idea of Disney perfection to make sure I'd be able to live underwater. Long, slender fingers were connected with a thin layer of tissue, likely to make travel underwater easier. The ears were different. I was assured I'd be able to hear just fine, and that the fin-like, vaguely ear-shaped pieces of flesh and tissue on the sides of the face would not negatively impact it. Most of the ear was internal, but Natasha informed me the tissue would act as both a way to filter sound on land as well as a fin to help me move. The hair moved, revealing the lines on the back of the neck. There was another set I could barely make out near the center of the torso, disappearing behind the back. Gills. Multiple sets were needed to ensure I got the proper amount of oxygen. I felt a giddy thrill run through me, and I smiled wide, managing to stifle a manic giggle. Swallowing through the lump of awe in my throat, I touched the tank in disbelief. A perfect replica of me floated in the tank, perfectly safe and warm and ready to swim in the sea or the ocean. I couldn't wait to get acclimated, so I might leave the safety of the tanks here to become one with the ocean, like I'd always wanted to. Maybe that was why I'd never seen another creature. Maybe they made them one at a time, to make sure the creatures didn't have any kind of reaction to one another. I smiled, hoping I wouldn't be lonely for long. My knees stopped working when it happened. The creature in the tank turned their head and opened their eyes. Perfectly violet eyes stared back at me. They weren't the vacant, lifeless eyes I'd expected. I wasn't sure the marrow knew much except what I'd told them while visiting, while watching them grow, but their eyes told me they knew more than I did. They were curious, and they were sad. 
I hadn't expected the tank version of myself to be ready to live before I ever got into the tank. I wondered if something was wrong, but Dr. Radagast assured me it was perfectly normal that the tank version had been alive the whole time, listening to me. It just hadn't been able to communicate yet, or strong enough to show it was awake. Before I could ask many follow-up questions, I was escorted out of the room by a stressed-looking Natasha, led down the hall with angelic tones of reassurance and leading me to the room that held my own tank. Genetic perfection always comes at a terrible price. The price for me had been pain. A few moments of indescribable pain, the pain of a thousand bones breaking at once, of genetic code being torn apart and put back together. I wasn't awake in the warm embrace of the liquid in the tank, but I was hardly as asleep as they said I would be. Opening my eyes, I knew something was different. I was cold, and instead of being fanned around me, my hair hung against my shoulders. I took a breath of fresh air, nervousness taking over my body. I had been removed from the tank. I focused, cleared my head, and wiggled my fingers. They moved at my command, but felt strange, like I was wearing a glove over my hands. Next, I tried to shift my legs. The last thing I wanted was a cramp or a blood clot or anything. I'd been sedentary for who knows how long. I certainly didn't want to risk anything. What raised under the blankets was much larger than any leg could have been. It was what I imagined that day on the beach, and so many days before that. Instead of two slim, pale legs, I had one glorious, long, powerful tail fin. Genetic perfection. I savored the tail fin for a moment before releasing it. Taking me from the tank had been quite the process. Getting me to the larger tank would be quite another, I imagined. I half wondered why they hadn't simply put me in a tank and moved me to the oceanic room prior to taking me out of the tank. I was alone, with not a doctor, a nurse, or even Natasha anywhere nearby to ask anything. My mind flew to the little me that had been growing in the tank. I wondered if they'd been moved already, whether they'd been moved to the oceanic tank yet, and when I would get to meet them. Worry and excitement were in equal measures. I could concentrate on neither one. Shaking my confused head, I chose to feel the elation of victory. I finally had it. The body I'd been dreaming of since childhood. The one I'd drawn with scribbles and fingerprints and glitter and sequins hundreds of thousands of times. I had a horrible memory take over me. A nightmare scenario that might have happened if I'd found the genetic mythos organization at a different time. It was a dream I hated, but it had spilled into sleep I'd had within the tank. One body was imperfect, having grown too long in a fully human body. Their gills were gaping gashes in their body, and to filter oxygen would be agony through them. Swimming with their tail would also be quite difficult, the fins not big enough to cut the water effectively. 
While it didn't feel like a dream, it was an impossible memory, one that couldn't possibly be true. I was here. I was perfect. I smiled, my teeth sharper than I'd remembered them being, though fitting for the marrow I'd become. A curtain was drawn back, and a nurse walked in. She gave me a warm smile, then proceeded to check my vitals. I nearly asked where the other one had gone, but was cut off before the words would leave my mouth. I wasn't in a bed, as I'd thought, but in a shallow pool. My lower half needed salt water. Drying out would be detrimental. I thought of all the times I'd seen sea creatures washed up to shore, scaled hides dry and chapped where they should have been smooth. I told them my name, age, how I'd gotten to live the genetic mythos organization, and a slew of additional information I wasn't sure I'd ever given them. Finally satisfied, the nurse headed out of my room, pulling the curtain closed as she did so, casting me into an unknown melancholy. I was a little queasy, which must have been residual from the drugs that had been keeping me asleep. Lying back, I closed my eyes and fell into sleep. The next day, I was moved to the large tank. The clean smell of the salty air brought a smile to my face. The only thing I lacked was a way to see the real sun, which I knew I would be getting soon enough. I plunged into the dark recesses of the pool as soon as I was able, swimming as far down as I could go, wondering if I was strong enough yet to reach the bottom. The tank went lower than I'd thought. There were several levels to it, almost like the giant tank of an aquarium. I wondered if that's what used to be in this building, and it was repurposed into a research facility. I suppose that made the most sense. I wondered if Natasha or Dr. Radagast might answer if I asked. I swam for the top of the tank, wondering how I might keep my personal belongings like my journals now that I would be living in the water. I hadn't thought about keeping them with me, or dry, when I was released from the tank into the ocean. I supposed I'd have to leave them behind, much as I'd never wanted to. I poked my head out of the water in time for a chill to run through me. The geneticists hadn't accounted for my newfound hearing. They'd given me ears that would allow me to hear underwater. They'd also allowed me a greater range above as well. I surfaced, just as they were talking about how there was no more funding. They had not shown results, or had not shown enough results, to keep the money flowing to them, and they were going to have to figure out how to fund their experiments if they wished to continue with them. And why wouldn't they? The solution came easily enough once they began talking. There were two or three human-passing experiments. They worked for the Genetic Mythos organization in the sense that they had nowhere to go once they'd been perfected. They would run tours through, making us the exhibits. A cold chill that had nothing to do with the water ran through me. I had signed a form or two, agreeing to work with them after the experiment was finished, to assist them with the experiments if needed and as needed. I hadn't been paying attention at the time, focused solely on wanting my new body as soon as possible. Second thoughts were heavy in my gut, and I sank back into the water, my body letting out its last breath before my gills began working. 
I wished I'd taken some time to read the paperwork before I'd signed it. Hell, Cassandra was a law student. She could have read them over and made sure I wouldn't be getting myself into anything detrimental. Now, my desire had led me to what would surely be my own damnation if they went through with the plan I'd overheard. They had everything a person could have wanted to see, and so much more. They had myths, monsters, and legends. They could make displays for popular media to drive in more customers. They could charge extreme amounts for photography. Once on social media, people would flock to us to get their own photo with the freak show, or try and debunk us, prove that we were not the genetic miracles we were. Returning to the surface, I tried to finish eavesdropping. I had to know if the idea had been dismissed. It hadn't. They had satyrs and fawns and nymphs and pixies and, they said, looking toward my tank with a smile bordering on cruelty, one that chilled me to the core. They had a main attraction that would keep people coming back and that would have people paying nearly any price. One that would draw audiences from far and wide all across the globe if they made sure to market correctly. Everyone wanted to see a real, live marrow. I watch from my secluded prison as people walk by, gawking and snapping photographs. I smile. I wave. I do a few tricks, swimming through intricately placed hoops to show my dexterity and speed in the water. The saltwater tank hasn't been properly cleaned and the buildup is nearly noticeable on my skin. Though no longer red and painful, I long for the aloe vera I'd kept for my beach excursions to cool the hot sting of the unfit cleaning chemicals that wore away the layer of mucus that protected my skin. My eyes have begun to burn from the filth, seeping in despite my adipose eyelid. I knew my concerns would be dismissed if I brought the information to the geneticists. They seemed not to care about science so much now. At least, not us completed experiments. Soon after I'd entered the tank, I asked Natasha, who often visited in those first weeks, what happened to the second marrow, the one being grown in the tank. Her eyes looked up to a few places in the room, then into mine, a mourning look that haunts me even now cutting through me. Her words told me she didn't know what I was talking about, but her eyes, they told me there was only one. The dream, the memory that couldn't be real, of two marrows, one a monster and one perfection, came back with cold clarity. Natasha had fled before I could press further, and the way her eyes darted around the room indicated our conversations were not private. I had taken to the water to scream my denial, emptying my lungs until salt water filled my mouth and threatened to choke me. I've stopped worrying about such things, and I have a better understanding of the sadness I'd seen when speaking to the creations. They didn't know if they were originals either, or if their maker's memories had been stored and implanted into an artificial hippocampus and placed inside them. Was I once human? Or am I simply marrow, 
Is mine not knowing what makes the Marrow Project their greatest success? I look down from where I sit, perched on a rock on the surface like Ariel from the Disney movie, into the murk of the water below. The tank needs cleaning. Soon patrons will notice, too. No one questions, though. Not how we came to exist, or why I stalk the watery stage like a caged lion, jumping through hoops for their amusements. No one questions the bruises on my arms from being mishandled by the geneticists, assuming it's because I'm part fish. They hardly ever notice, though, too enthralled by my red hair or my iridescent tail fin. A few children point, muffled voices sounding as worried as their little faces, quickly silenced by parents eager to believe in the mysticism of their childhoods. It is often easier to believe a lie than it is to accept a horrifying truth. I didn't and don't blame them. At one point in my life, I'd fallen victim to such things as well. Oftentimes, I feel I still am. Instead of wishing for what I thought was the glamour of a different life, I missed my old job at the hippie clothing store, ranting with Cassandra during the boring shifts and sunning on the beach when we could. I miss my humanity. My hair, flowing and bright blood red in the water, becomes a hard, salty mass when I return to the surface. For the time, I try to remember the joy I used to feel when my hair would be just as it is now, cascading around me like a halo, gently caressing me like a lover's touch. I sigh, thinking of the small things I missed. Sighing, for one. My lungs were so seldom used recently that it hurts my ribcage to breathe, even as I write this. Still an unconscious spasm of muscles, though. And I miss the smells associated with breathing oxygen and open air. I even miss the foul ones. I'm not sure if it's an instinct or just something the geneticists added to preserve their prized creation, but I can't inhale through my lungs underwater. No matter how I prepare, it's simply not possible. There's an alcove made of artificial coral where the cameras can't see me. That's how Natasha was able to bring me the journal from my old living quarters. She'd also brought me one of my softest pillows. How I miss my old fuzzy robe and its soft comfort. But I'm grateful for the small comforts she's given me. The journal is nearly full now, and when it is, she will take it somewhere. But I'm the one willing to risk everything to get any kind of message out. Maybe this will help someone, either to find us or to avoid making the same mistakes we all did. The alcove is warm, the building is safe, and none of us are in immediate danger. But we are prisoners here. Natasha is one of the oldest experiments, and one of the most trusted. They don't watch her as closely as the rest of us, and she often leaves the facility to go on walks or run menial errands for the scientists. If anyone can get this journal into someone's hands, it's her. Maybe it will find someone who might offer help, instead of simply gawking and taking selfies with the dirty tank for some kind of bragging rights. No one wants to help. 
but everyone wants a look. Everyone wants to see the mermaid. Thank you so much for listening to episode 1107 of The Wicked Library. Making the Marrow was written by Samantha Mayotte and narrated by Addison Peacock. To find out more about today's author and storyteller, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and check out their bio pages. I've been Jessica McAvoy. Thank you all so much for allowing me to join you amongst the dusty bookshelves for a while. If you'd like to hear more from me, I'm at JN McAvoy, M-C-E-V-O-Y, on Twitter and Instagram. I have several audiobooks available on Audible and iTunes, and am a regular presence on the No Sleep podcast. Today's episode would not be possible without the diligent work of lead editor and executive producer Scarlett R. Algy, resident composer and executive producer Nico Vitesse of We Talk of Dreams, art director and executive producer Jeanette Andromeda, who is responsible for this episode's artwork, and, of course, showrunner and producer Dan Foytek, who graciously invited me to join you all for today. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios, all rights reserved. Farewell, friends. Long live libraries and those who get lost in them. We'll see you next time when the doors open again.